Today on Know the Truth, a new lesson from Philip de Courcy. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed, because Jesus Christ has come to the slave market of sin and put down his blood as a payment price. He's purchased us, and we're no longer slaves to sin, but freely slaves to Jesus Christ, which is the essence of freedom. Welcome to Know the Truth. I'm Wayne Shepherd. As Christians, most of us have heard that we've been redeemed, but do we understand what that really means for us? Today, Philip DeCourcy explains that as creatures redeemed or purchased through the blood of Christ, we no longer own ourselves. We're owned by God. It's a message titled At Your Service from the Without Apology series, and you can always replay your favorite messages at ktt.org or access full sermons on the KTT app. Search for the app Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Here's Philip. For years, Alistair Begg, preacher and pastor, carried a little card in his pocket into the pulpit of Parkside Church in Cleveland. And the card read like this, I renounce my desire for human praise, for the approval of my peers, the need for public recognition. I deliberately put these things aside today, content to hear the whisper, well done, my faithful servant. In fact, over the years, Alistair Begg has worn out several of these little cards in his quest to remain a humble servant of God and a faithful expositor of his word. And so reflecting on that story, I was struck by that line. That's a captivating line, content to hear the whisper, well done, my faithful servant. That's something that should capture and captivate any one of us. A life well lived is a life that ends with the well done of God. For the Christian minister, for the Christian man, every waking hour is about serving the plan of God in a manner that meets with his approval. Paul says, doesn't he, in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, whether absent or present, I want to be found pleasing to him. For us, heaven's applause, God's commendation unites our hearts, focuses our mind, and fires our soul. We want to serve the purposes of God in a manner that indeed meets with his approval. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 4. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. If you scroll down to verse 15 of 2 Timothy 2, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For us, the highest honor is to serve God and be known as God's servant. And here in 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 to 24, we have a description, a crystal clear outline of what it is to be a servant of the Lord. 
Now, I want us to come and consider this phrase with you and what we find here in terms of a servant's calling and character and conduct. There's three things I want us to see. Number one, the description. Number two, the disposition. And number three, the deliverance. As you and I aspire, as you and I have come to this conclusion in our lives, we'll be content to hear well done, faithful servant, then what does it mean to be a faithful servant? What does that look like? How does one indeed embrace and express that kind of thinking? Well, let's look at number one at what I call the description. Verse 24, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. At the heart of this text is the description, the servant of the Lord. This is the seventh picture that Paul kneels to the walls of our mind concerning Christian leadership. He has described the Christian leader and the man of God as a trustee, as a soldier, as an athlete, as a farmer, as a workman, as a vessel. There are several pictures that Paul hangs on the walls of our mind here in 2 Timothy concerning Christian ministry. And this is one of the descriptors that the apostle uses concerning pastoral ministry. A servant of the Lord. That's what I call the description. Now, let's drill down into this just for a couple of minutes. In our English versions, the Greek word doulos is translated servant. But that is not a good translation. That is not an accurate translation. Because doulos is the Greek term that's common for slave. Slave. And yet for years, English translators of the Bible have dodged that term. In fact, in his book, Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ, John MacArthur shows us across church history that most English Bibles have softened this term in their translation. Doulos appears 124 times in the New Testament, and it always means slave. In fact, there are several other Greek words available to Paul, to John, to Peter, to the New Testament writers that clearly means servant. But doulos is not one of them. We have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it, which he has to perform whether he likes it or not, because he is subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. Guys, this is a striking term. And given the dialogue and the controversy that's gone on in our own country regarding America's period of slavery, isn't it striking that actually this is a term that the Apostle Paul uses of the Christian? We are slaves to Jesus Christ. We are those who do the will of another your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the word that's before us. And there are several things involved in it. The price involved is an interesting thought, isn't it? Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 to 20? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So now live out your life as one owned by another, bought by another. There's no way to sugarcoat this term. We've tried to do it. 
Every time we read the word servant in the New Testament, that's a translation of the Greek word doulos, we should be translating it slave. Paul, the slave of Jesus Christ. He writes that in several of his letters in the opening verse. Sometimes it's translated bond servant, but it's actually slave. And there's a price involved. In fact, one of the words used for redemption in the New Testament is a word that means to buy a slave at the marketplace. That's the image of redemption. Now, in this case, redemption is the purchasing of the slave to set them free. And that's what Jesus Christ did. Because according to John 8, you and I are slaves to our sin nature. We go astray from the womb. We take to rebellion, lawlessness, and sin like a duck to water. The cords of our sin bind us, according to Proverbs 5.22. And Jesus Christ comes and he frees us from that. But the implication of redemption in the New Testament is he frees us from the slavery of sin into the freedom of slavery to his will. So there's a price involved. Secondly, there's a posture involved. A posture involved. Colossians 3, verse 23, Paul is actually addressing slaves, Christian slaves, and he's telling them what attitude they ought to exhibit and what posture they ought to take regarding their masters. And what's true in terms of physical slavery is true in terms of spiritual slavery. Colossians 3.22, bondservants, doulos, slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it hardly as to the Lord and not to men. Bondservants, slaves, the doulos, obey in all things. So when Paul says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, as a slave of Jesus Christ, here's how you ought to behave. There's a price involved in that, and there's a posture involved in that. Timothy ought to do everything that Jesus commands him to do. No ifs, no buts about it. He has surrendered his will to an alien will, to another will, but this is a kind master, not a cruel master. He has been bought with a price. So there's a price involved in this image. There's a posture involved in this image. And there's a paradox involved in this image. Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Right? John 8 verse 36. And we have been bought from the slavery of sin. And we have been brought into slavery to Jesus Christ, a good and kind master whose will is good and pleasurable. And so the paradox is that we will never be more free as men when we're the slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Roman world, slavery was bondage. Slavery was cruelty, punishment, hardship. But slavery to Jesus Christ is freedom, joy, eternal purpose, an everlasting reward. That's the paradox. In fact, when you go to Romans 6, Paul takes that theme up. We were once slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. 
In Romans 6 verse 22, here's what we read. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. While our country runs from every image and symbol of slavery, and that's a debate in itself, we as Christian men don't run from the thought of slavery because it's a descriptor of the man of God. In fact, given the debate that's going on in our country, it might be a good time the next time somebody's having a profitable conversation about that, you say, you know what? You need to know as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am a slave. But this is a freeing slavery. And do you realize that you are slaves to your sin nature and addicted to your love of self? And only Jesus Christ can free you from that? and bring you paradoxically into the freedom of servitude in his kingdom because we were made for him. We exist for his pleasure and we will never be our true selves and enjoy the fullness of life until we're back serving God, the God we walked away from. So that's the description. Secondly, we've got the disposition. The disposition. Because according to Paul, the servant of the Lord will exhibit certain traits, certain behavior that will both protect the church, enhance the gospel, and multiply his effectiveness. Now, Paul describes these traits in both negative and positive terms. There are some things the servant of God should not do, and there are some things the servant of God should do. So let's get into the text. We've moved from the description, the servant of the Lord, to the disposition. How does that work itself out? Negatively, look at verse 23. 2 Timothy 2. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife, and the servant of the Lord must not be a quarreler or quarrelsome or not quarrel. The servant of the Lord is not to engage in fruitless theological disputes with false teachers and become argumentative in spirit. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on verse 23 because we can have covered that in a former study. In fact, this is the third time Paul has addressed false teachers and false teaching and how they generate strife and they're divisive and they're damaging to the body of Christ. And Paul reminds Timothy for the third time to avoid that. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these and charge them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of their hearers. Look at verse 16, but shun profane and idle babbling that increase ungodliness. We've kind of covered that. Now let me say this. When Paul says in verse 13, don't avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife and don't be quarrelsome, he's not prohibiting controversy. Paul's not saying you never engage in controversy regarding doctrine or theology. He's not saying that. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 12 of his first letter, he tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. In fact, in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 7, he'll speak of himself that I've run the race and I've fought the fight and I've kept the faith. So whatever this prohibition is, it's not a censoring of all controversy, all theological debate. There is a time and a place to engage in polemics. Jude 3, right? Contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Philippians 1 verse 7, I am set for the defense 
of the gospel. Titus 1 verse 9, the elder must refute those who are in error. But what we are to avoid is discussion that is speculative in nature, not biblical, that starts somewhere outside of the Scriptures, that generates strife rather than fosters unity, that ends up hurting people rather than helping them, and that gives oxygen and platform to false teachers. That's off limits. So Paul's not prohibiting all controversy, but he is addressing the attitude that ought to mark theological debate when it justly takes place. And what is that attitude? Verse 24, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Interesting Greek word, it speaks of hand-to-hand combat. And Paul is saying here, look, if you're going to get involved in controversy, do it out of love for Jesus Christ, not as a seeker of contention. The servant of the Lord is not to be quarrelsome or argumentative in spirit. If you're going to argue theology, if you're going to get into the finer points of doctrine, make sure, guard your heart, that it's out of a love for the truth, that it's out of a concern for the souls of man, and it's not out of a love for argument. You know what? If you're going to defend the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, make sure you look something like him when you're doing it. It's kind of basically what Paul is saying. Because Jesus was gentle, according to Matthew 11, verse 29, and Matthew 21, verse 5. You know what? If you study the life of Charles Simeon, an English pastor in Cambridge, he was the brunt of people's jokes in academia as an evangelical. Even his own church gave him a hard time where many people locked the doors to their pews and didn't come to church. And because they had purchased those pews and locked the door, no one else could sit on those pews. And literally most of his congregation for almost 10 years stood along the side walls and the back wall in between the aisles of the church for 10 years until God brought him through that and brought him beyond that. But listen to these words by Simeon himself during that time. In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. The passage of Scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the aisles, almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would be on the whole be as much good done if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such reflection I should have sunk beneath the burden. But let's move on, not just negatively, positively. What does it look like to be a servant of God? Well, on the negative side, as Spurgeon said, you don't go around with the theological revolver tucked down your belt waiting to pistol whip anybody that disagrees with you, okay? If you're like that, you're not a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is not quarrelsome. He doesn't pick fights. Positively, but he's gentle. Did you notice that? But the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Not mean-spirited, not contentious, not spoiling for a fight. Quite the opposite. The opposite of the guy who picks the fight, who lights the fuse, who starts the brawl, 
is the guy who's gentle to all, mild, measured in his responses to those that oppose. See, when somebody opposes you as a Christian, takes issue with the gospel, what's kind of your instinctual response? You know, is it to stick it to them? To, you know, put the fists up and go, okay, let's do battle. Or is it to step back, gain your composure, step forward and engage them in a loving, gentle, mild-mannered, Christ-like fashion? That's certainly what marked the Lord Jesus Christ and something that should indeed mark us. And I understand this is not a call to timidity. We're not talking about that. We're not becoming theologically disinterested here or doctrinally passive. There's no way he means that. And you know that because if you look at verse 25, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. But what's the spirit? What's the manner? It's gentleness. It's being affable in spirit, kind in manner and thoughtful in your way. Listen, guys, gentleness is always the will and the work of God, for it is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.23 If Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, then we should be too. This is Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy, and Philip has more to share in just a moment, so stick around. Today you heard a message titled At Your Service, and if you joined us late, be sure to catch up by downloading the KTT app or podcast. Just search your favorite app store or podcast platform for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy, or listen online at ktt.org. Well, we learned today that everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And as believers who've been purchased by the blood of Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. We are freely slaves to Christ through a loving relationship with the one who created heaven and earth. That is true freedom. But unfortunately, most of the world is still living in darkness and bondage to sin because they don't know Christ. But Philip, when our listeners give financially in their service to God, know the truth is able to share the gospel with a world in need of truth. You're right, Wayne. A lot of people are surprised to learn that know the truth is required to pay for airtime on radio stations. In fact, I was playing golf with a man in our church just the other day who asked that very question and was surprised to learn the cost of a radio broadcast or our footprint on social media. There's no such a thing as a free lunch, even when it comes to Christian ministry and Christian media. Then on top of that, we have the expense of planning and producing these messages, as well as companion guides and other resources for our listeners. So we are grateful, very grateful, to those who give financially in support of our mission to deliver God's truth to a world in need of truth, both in this nation and around the world. And I'm proud to say that when you give to KTT, your dollars go directly towards providing the programming that benefits so many. And I would remind you in your giving that the beauty of your investment is that it's multiplied in the lives of so many people as hearts and homes are touched. You know, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that there were a group of women who financed Jesus' ministry. They were patrons of the Gospel. And we need patrons of the Gospel. We need people to underwrite our ministry financially. Would you consider doing that today? Would you consider being a Gospel patron? 
Wien, will you tell them how to get in touch? I sure will. You can become a Truth Ambassador by calling us at 888-644-8811 or by visiting us online at ktt.org. As a thank you for your partnership, you'll receive a welcome package with books by Pastor Philip and other exclusive benefits like the quarterly Accord newsletter designed specifically for our Truth Ambassadors. You'll also receive Living by God's Promises by Joel R. Beakey and James A. LaBelle. This book provides insight into God's promises for believers in all stages of life, equipping them to live with confidence, assurance, and energy daily. And finally, you'll receive a custom Know the Truth shirt as a special thank you to regularly remind you that you're a faithful member of the Know the Truth team. Just call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to join us tomorrow to learn more about our gracious God and what it means to live a life at His service. That'll be Wednesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.